From the book of Isaiah, chapter 43, starting with verse 16. This is what the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. Forget the former things, do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. The wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I form for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. The word of the Lord. From the letter of Paul to the Philippians, chapter 3, starting with verse 4b. If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus in my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage, that I may, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that, which, of that for which Christ Jesus took hold for me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. The word of the Lord. Let's stand for the reading of our gospel. The gospel of St. John, chapter 12, starting with verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus's honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus's feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to whatever was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not, not always have me. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all this morning. Uh, uh, hey, I want to start today with a little bit of a recommendation. Um, and I've mentioned this before on um, 
like our uh, Facebook group and stuff like that. But if you have not um, had a chance to check out the this um, the Life of Jesus documentary on uh, History Channel, it is really quite good. Um, I've been impressed with it every year about this time, and then sometimes at Christmas time, there seems like there's another documentary about the life of Jesus, about those, and a lot of times it's done with the idea, kind of the hook of trying to debunk the stories. So you see kind of, was Jesus really married? Or, you know, all these kind of different things. And, and those are fine as far as they go, and a lot of times they have serious scholars, and that's great. But this one is really a celebration of the biblical text. Um, they get a variety of different views, some who see more of the stories as kind of literary and symbolic and some who see them as literal. But for the most part, they really celebrate what is beautiful about the life of Jesus and really bring out some of the great strengths. Some of my favorite scholars are interviewed on this documentary and it's been a weekly kind of thing. I don't normally give like recommendations like that, but this one has been quite good. So I want to encourage you to check that out. Um, We have uh, reached the final stretch of Lent this is the last Sunday of Lent. And so this journey that we've been on, this Lenten journey, this journey to the cross is reaching its fulfillment. We're headed that way this week. And I'm not sure about you, but if you've been on a road trip before, which I'm sure all of you have, um, it's to me, the last hour or so is the hardest part of the road trip. It's the most difficult one. I am ready to get there. Everybody's tired, everybody's cranky, especially when we're headed home. Everybody is just ready to be home. Everybody, but all of a sudden the last like hour or so of the road trip, everybody has to use the bathroom again. I can't wait the other hour, right? Um, Lucy wants, is begging for our phones to watch at this point when we've said no for the past four hours. She's begging over and over again, can I please watch this? Something about the last little bit of the road trip that is so hard. I find myself antsy to just get home, get back into the regular swing of life. But that last hour is so difficult. And Part of what we're experiencing here at the end of Lent, Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. He's been heading to Jerusalem for his death the entire time. And the disciples have had this like shift in their perspective. So all along, they believe that Jesus is leading them to triumph, that he is the king and he's gonna rise up and get military strength and lead them into glory. But at about this point in the journey, they're starting to realize this destination may be the same, But the way that this kingdom is coming about is way different than what we expected. Like their frame is having to change. Their perspective is having to change. Um, They thought that Jesus, well, he's the conquering Messiah. So his influence, his moxie, his uh, brave kingdom announcement would lead them to conquer Rome. So they would build military strength. But it turns out the road to Jerusalem was a difficult journey and the inauguration of this king would look very, very different. Now, Jesus obviously knew this all along and he unfolded this for them on the journey. So those are the texts we've been looking at, Jesus changing their perspective and changing what they're looking for in a king. This new kingdom he was announcing would involve him giving up his life, not just conquering, but laying down himself for the world. So today I wanna talk about giving up. I wanna encourage you today when times get hard to give up. How's that for a pep talk, right? Can you imagine a a general in war um, or a coach in the locker room at halftime? Things have gotten really heated, they've gotten difficult. And he says, guys, I want you, or gals, I want you to go out. And today I want you to give up. 
No, we don't hear that very often, do we? Like, lay yourself down. That's the goal of this basketball game, is to lay yourself down. Um, I watched my Indiana Pacers on Friday night, and they played a really important big game. And there was a point in the game where the result was inevitable. And so the Pacers were going to lose, and the, you saw the coach sent in all the players who never play and let them go ahead and play in these last few minutes. My brother sent me a white flag emoji for the end of the game, and it was over. The Celtics were going to win. Jesus is not calling us to give up on hard things. That's not what I'm saying. But to give up our old ways, to lay down our old kinds of striving, the way that we saw success and we saw value and we saw validation in our lives. He's calling us to lay those things down. The places where we've trusted in ourselves, the places where we believe that we have all the answers, he's calling us to give it up, lay it down. In giving up, we surrender to God and we allow him to invite us to think about how we live our lives differently than we did before. In the Isaiah 43 text, Isaiah calls the Lord, he says, the one who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings out chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Um, Isaiah, the prophet, is writing many, many, many years after, centuries after the Exodus story, but he's reflecting on Israel's story, the Exodus story. He's looking back. And if you picture, we've talked about this before, but you picture the children of Israel, they've been released from captivity in Egypt, okay? They've been set free. And then they find themselves, the Egyptian army, Pharaoh has a change of heart. And so the Egyptian army is coming after them. And they've got the Egyptian army on one side, and then they've got the Red Sea on the other side, and they're trapped, right? And God does something miraculous. He parts the Red Sea, like incredible. Like he parts the Red Sea for them to walk through. And then not only that, he parts the Red Sea, but there's like a, there's a timer on how long the Red Sea is parted, okay? So after they're through, then the Egyptian army goes in and it all crashes down on the Egyptian army, right? So that's what they're reflecting on here. God parts the sea, then the sea comes crashing down on the Egyptian army. And this passage says the Egyptians are quenched like a wick. So they're extinguished, they're done with. Isaiah first calls them to remember these moments, Israel to remember these moments of deliverance. But then also, it's interesting in this story, remember them, but then forget them because that's in the past. God is doing something new. Remember God's faithfulness. You'll always remember God's faithfulness, but then also don't just cling on to that. Trust that there is something new. Don't dwell on the past. Of course, they will forever remember them, but God is not only a God of activity in the past. He is also an activity now. He is present now. God is with us now and he's doing a new thing. God says, lay those things down. And this is important because we know that the children of Israel were tempted to look back. They were tempted to long for Egypt. And we even get this language of, at least in Egypt, we knew where our next meal was coming from. We were in captivity, we were in slavery, but it was familiar. And we at least knew how we were gonna be provided for. God says through the prophet Isaiah, I am about to do a new thing. I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. There's a poetic device here. At the beginning, he said that God is the one who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. That's the story of the Red Sea. He makes a path in the seas. So that's what you know about God. That's your past. This is how God delivered you before. He's the sea parting God, you know that. 
And now he will do a new thing. And this new thing is so new, it is a path, not in the sea, but in the wilderness, a place that you wouldn't expect a path to be. The thing that God does is a new thing. God may not take care of you in the same way that he always has, but he will take care of you. It will probably be scary. It will require all that you have, but it will be water in the desert for you. Are you open to what God is going to do in your life? Some of you have gone through a lot of transition lately. Some of you have lost jobs recently. Some of you are having kids. Um, You have ongoing family transitions that have been hard. Um, Some of you, that may happen for you in coming months or years. You may have changes in your life. And in transition, the temptation is always to cling on to what was in the past to look back at what was before. And there's natural anxiety that happens because things are changing. All you can see is how things were rather than how things are. But God is doing a new thing. Trust in Jesus will be required in the new thing. Don't cling to the old. Paul was faced with this looking back issue himself, okay? Uh, This is what he means in our epistle text by when he says the flesh. Um, and he trusted in the flesh. Now that word in the Bible, I think is one of the most like misunderstood words that we read in all of scripture. Um, It may even be mistranslated, but he's saying that he had confidence. Paul used to have confidence in who he was ethnically, in his ethnicity, okay? So you see a lot of the Jewish people were in a place in Paul's day where they were emphasizing their Jewish ethnicity as a way of making them better than everyone else, okay? that they were really, really part of God's chosen people. There were people who were doing that, particularly the leaders of certain sects of this community. But what they were in fact doing is they were playing the world's game. Anytime, um, this is what every really group, cultural group does, that we try to say that we are the best. And by doing that, the leaders of this movement were actually making themselves like everyone else in the world. If we go back to the Old Testament, when Israel said, we want a king like everyone else. Like rather than trusting in you as our king, we want a king like all the other nations. That's what they're doing here. The point of Israel was not that they were to be like everyone else, squabbling about which cultural group was the best, but that they are called to be a light to the world. Many of the early Christian churches at this time um, Uh, were tempted by a group that was insisting on hanging on to Jewish cultural practices. So what they would say is they'd, uh, they'd say that faith in Christ is what's important. You trust in Jesus. But once you do that, if you're a Gentile and you're non-Jewish, there's another step to that. You have to go through certain cultural Jewish practices in order to really be into the church, okay? So you have to be circumcised, um, which you can imagine how some people, that would be a resistant thing for them at their conversion. Um, That that also you have to follow certain food laws or Sabbath um, observance and those kind of things. You have to be fully culturally Jewish in order to be part of the church. But Paul challenges this. He said all along that faith is the marker of being in God's family, not cultural stuff. And Paul reminds them he is one of them, okay? He is a Jewish Christian and he's an impressive one at that. 
He has all the right credentials. He's certainly not anti-Jewish. Some people have accused Paul of that, and I don't think you can do that. He believes that the story of Israel has now been radically fulfilled in an unexpected way in Jesus Christ. That thing that we were called to do and those people that we were called to be, it's now been fulfilled. It's happened in the person of Jesus Christ, and that changes everything. So he tells the Philippians that if anyone has any reason to be confident in their status as being part of God's chosen people, it's him. He was circumcised, just like all Jewish little boys were supposed to. He was part of Israel, specifically the tribe of Benjamin. But he goes on listing his credentials. He was a Pharisee, this conservative sect, so much so that he resisted all opposition, including Christians. And then he says something that is really outlandish. He said he was righteous under the law, blameless. He was blameless. You could look at the law and you can't find one fault in me, Paul is saying. Paul would say, check the record, I'm flawless. He's saying, if you wanna talk about insiders and outsiders culturally to God's family, I stack up well. Not only am I part of the in-group, I'm part of the inner in-group, I'm part of the elite group. There's nothing mixed about my ethnicity or background. I am one of God's chosen people and should be like one of those excluding all of the other people. But, Paul says, in light of Jesus Christ, he says, none of that matters. None of it matters. Exclusion is not in my heart because of Jesus. I have given up the old. What, is, what this does for Paul is profound. Um, when he chooses not to trust in his own ethnic and moral badges, he opens himself up to see that Christ is inviting those who are not from the right group those who have messed up their lives, and even Gentiles. The whole world has changed for Paul when he gave up. He says here, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as, I think our translation said, garbage. The King James Version says rubbish. I regard them as rubbish, okay? But that word rubbish is not nearly strong enough. Okay, we've like translated it in so many different ways. It's really, it's excrement is what he's saying here. Um, it is a swear word that he's using here. Like it's extreme language. The Greek word is scubalone, okay? He's, uh, I consider it scubalone. I consider all of this scubalone. I don't even give a scubalone anymore is what he's saying, right? Reject it all. Why? Because now he's in Christ by faith. His status in life has completely changed. And so the way he used to measure his life has changed. His status is not based on his ethnicity or his moral or cultural background. He has a new status. But it's not just a status change. It's also a relationship that Paul is saying here. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing in his sufferings by becoming like him in death if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He wants to be like Jesus. He wants to know Christ. If we want to be like Jesus, our pride has to go away. We have to give it up. We're not the same people. It changes the whole of who we are. Paul had created quite a career of himself as a rabbi. He was the cream of the crop, but he says now all of that is scubalone. There's a guy I used to listen to years ago. Um, he's a preacher by the name of Shane Hips. And 
I gave it away saying he's a preacher, but he, uh, he used to be a advertising executive and he was well known for um, creating brands, okay? And he specifically was well known for creating the brand for Porsche, the most recent uh, brand for Porsche. And, and he had built all of this incredible empire. He was incredibly rich, really wealthy, really successful. But at some point, he became disillusioned with it all. And he felt like, where is the end game? He began to think about really his job was to hack into people's brains in order to manipulate them to buy high-end luxury items. For him, now I'm not saying you can't, you, you can't be faithful in those kind of jobs, but for him, he couldn't do it anymore. And at kind of the end of his rope and the end of his disillusionment, he, Christ found him and got a hold of him. And he was challenged by that. And so what did he do? He became a Mennonite pastor. Okay. So he went from, if you don't know what Mennonite is, it's kind of one step away from Amish, <laughs> you know, like re, pretty far. Um, so, so he went from this high powered, flashy, rich executive to a Mennonite pastor of a church. It's a whole different game. And this is kind of what Paul, a little bit of what Paul is experiencing. He's in a whole different ball game than he was before. He used to measure his success by certain identity markers in his life. He used to be on top of the Jewish world because of who he was, but now he's embracing suffering. He wants to be like Jesus. An encounter with Christ costs us everything. It's a complete reorientation of our lives. It's a turning from what used to matter in Christ. And there's a humility here. He says, not that I've already obtained all this or that I've reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Beloved, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining towards what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the heavenly calling of God in Christ Jesus. So notice the contrast of the old life. I was that. I measured who I was based on my, uh, my affiliations and what I had achieved and my badges. I was the best at this. And then the new life, he says, I haven't obtained this yet. I haven't reached the goal. I am pressing on. There's a humility in this, in trusting. It's not about what I've achieved. I'm trusting God's work in me. Paul gave up. In our gospel text, Jesus arrives at the home of his friends, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And this is six days before the Passover. So Jesus is on the way. At the end of Lent, it's appropriate to read this because he's on his way to Jerusalem to his death. This passage reminds us that Lazarus was the one who Christ raised from the dead. And it's kind of like an offhanded way that he reminds us this. So it goes, uh, Jesus went to the home of Lazarus, the one who he raised from the dead. We're like, oh, okay, that was a pretty significant um, event in their life. Uh, some scholars have suggested that maybe they were celebrating Lazarus's raised from the deadness at this point. Like that, that, that's what they were doing at this house. So he and Lazarus had been friends before he was raised from the dead but even, they have even more history now, obviously. There's a bond that's been sealed there. And the story of the woman anointing Jesus's feet is told in different ways in the gospels. So it's like in several different paths and it seems like it's a different person in the different gospels. We're not gonna be able to explore all of that today, but uh, we're gonna focus on John's account where Mary takes um, a pint of this costly perfume and anoints Jesus's feet. 
wiping them with her hair. Notice that Judas is concerned about the cost, concerned about the value of the perfume. He thinks that Mary is giving up too much in her worship of Jesus. She's too extravagant. So John, the author, makes an editorial comment here. (laughs) Um, He says, Judas says this not because he cares about the poor, but because he's a thief, okay? So he doesn't let the story play on. He kind of inserts his little, yeah, Judas wouldn't say that because he cares about the poor. He's a thief. Judas's concern about value is interesting because I don't know about you, in a neutral setting, we could see that Judas may have a point, right? Have you ever, okay, maybe I'm the only one that's sympathized with Judas before, sorry. But how many times have we as Christians lamented about how much the church spends on frivolous things, okay? I've heard so many times about how much churches spend on buildings and fancy things and worship and then the poor are neglected. I hear that over and over again, right? That's a legit point. A friend of mine pointed this out to me on Instagram, and uh, it's it's an account that is called Pastor's Sneakers. Anybody seen this before? Okay, I'm introducing you to it. Uh, It's really tacky, and I don't endorse it, and I have mixed feelings about this being on the podcast. But basically what they do is they take pictures of very famous preachers wearing high-end sneakers, And then they post screenshots of how much those sneakers are going for online. (laughs) And that's the whole account, right? Is posting like these famous preachers and the fancy sneakers that they wear, okay? Um, and, And it's kind of revealing what it's attempting to do. And again, it's tacky, but what it's attempting to do is to show how many preachers wear $1,000 plus tennis shoes. Okay, it's kind of trying to be prophetic in its own way. And, and so I think there is a movement culturally that, I mean, this Instagram account's gone viral and there's all these things. And so there's a movement where we kind of, we empathize with some of this, this criticism. Like, like, how are these church leaders spending so much on what we'd consider frivolous things? That's a common thing in our culture. Um, but motivation matters, doesn't it? The disciples don't realize that Jesus is going towards his death. He won't be with them for much longer in the same way. This isn't a neutral setting, okay? This isn't just a question about whether the poor will be taken care of. Jesus is about to go to his death, which is way different than what the disciples expected. Mary is doing a prophetic action by anointing his feet with this expensive perfume. Anointing was a way of preparing a person for their burial. So she has recognized, even when none of these other guys get it, she has recognized that Jesus is going to die. He's going to give his life. Sometimes legitimate critiques come from insincere hearts. Do we critique worship because our heart bleeds for God and his people? Or do we critique like Judas because we wanna tear things down or like Judas because he has dollar signs in his eyes? He's thinking about himself and the benefit he'll receive. Sometimes Jesus's response to Judas is used to say, because Jesus says, the poor will be with you always, right? And so it's used to say that, well, poverty is inevitable. So Christians shouldn't really work to eliminate poverty because we're always gonna have poverty. Like sometimes that's used for that reason. You always have the poor among you, but you'll not always have me, Jesus says. I remember in the early 2000s when the One campaign was launched. Does anybody remember that? Okay, the One campaign um, was launched with the intention of ending global poverty. 
and the belief that we actually could do it. Bono was kind of the, the face of that. And I remember how cool it was seeing Bono and President Bush at the time work together to increase the U.S. budget to 1% for global poverty relief. And that was such a big deal. And remember all of the awareness around that. And that campaign, along with a variety of other awareness campaigns, actually made, and we, we don't realize this today, it made a huge dent in global poverty relief. It really did. Some of the extreme issues that were being experienced at the time were changed radically. And I remember some Christians at the time in response to that campaign saying, well, we can never eliminate poverty. Why even try, was the response. The poor will always be with us. It's just part of life. But it's important that we see that is not what Jesus is saying here. He is not saying the poor will always be with you. So, you know, that's less important than worship. No, he's not saying that at all. In fact, when you look at the passage he's quoting from in Deuteronomy, he's say, the passage says, there will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. The question is really thrown back to Judas. Are you doing your part? Is Israel doing their part? Are they obeying the law of Deuteronomy? Your critique has some validity, sure, but what are you doing about it, is his challenge to Judas. Judas's distraction is an effort to deny what is happening. Jesus is going to the cross. He's laying his life down and the disciples don't want to deal with that. They can't see what God is doing in that moment. And so Judas uses what seems like a noble idea to distract from that. Notice that this kind of thing always happens with Mary, Lazarus's sister, okay? The previous time that we see her, um, all she wants to do is sit at the feet of Jesus, to love him, listen to him, serve him. And her sister Martha complains that Mary's not concerned enough about the practical matters of the food and the table serving. So th that's kind of Mary, what she tends to do. She's drawn to Jesus and to worshiping him. Here she is standing in a prophetic role, pointing to Christ's coming death, and some dude tells her that she should be giving it to the poor. Mary is giving her life to Jesus and allowing Jesus to define her identity and her mission, and people keep coming along trying to block her from that. Mary is the only one who gets it. She knows what's happening here. We can use noble things to block out God. We can use hospitality to block out God's challenge to us in the moment. We can use social justice, and you guys know I am all for social justice, but we can use it as a screen to prevent ourselves from being challenged by the countercultural ways of Jesus and just to get into a certain kind of cultural fight or divide. Mary is a sign here of true discipleship. She gives herself in worship of Jesus. It's so interesting, if you look for signs of true discipleship in the gospel, all you have to do is go through the gospels and look for anyone named Mary and you'll see a sign of true discipleship. Because the, the people we call the 12 disciples, they, they're kind of mixed, right? Like, like they have some good days, they have some bad days. But if you look for anybody named Mary, chances are good you're gonna see true discipleship. Mary, the mother of Jesus, surrenders to become the God-bearer to give up her previous life and become the mother of Jesus. Mary of Bethany, this Mary in this story, gives up her friend, her teacher, 
the one she loves, knowing that he's going to die. And this prophetic action surrenders to God's will. And at the tomb, we see Mary Magdalene, after Jesus rises from the dead, wants so badly to cling on to him, but she surrenders and lets him go, knowing that this new life is different than the one that he had before. The presence of Jesus is more important than anything. That's what I want us to see today. It gives us eyes to see the world differently, eyes to see our lives differently, the things that we've accumulated, the things that we've gone through in the past. It gives us eyes to see those and then also to say, God, what are you doing in me now? Jesus rightly orders everything. In Jesus, we're given an identity which allows us to care for the poor rightly. In Jesus, we're given an identity by which we can live out true hospitality in our lives. In Jesus, we see money and time and family and work, not all as evil, but as things that can be ordered rightly for God's glory and not idols in and of themselves. But we have to pay attention to who he is and what he's doing rather than resting in our own ideas of what is valuable and what is not. We are all so prone like Judas to false motives. Only in Christ do we see the world as it truly is. Jesus calls us to give up our previous way of seeing even the things that we think are right. And he calls us to look to him as the one who reorders it all. Here's just a few things in closing that I hope that we can walk away with today and kind of pierce our hearts. Everything about God is unexpected and surprising. Everything about God. He is constantly upending us. He is constantly challenging us. Anytime we think we've understand Jesus, <laughs> that we've figured him out, every once in a while, there'll be a book that's produced that says, oh, we figured out that Jesus was really this kind of prophet in the ancient world. And he was just like all these other prophets. Or somebody will come along and go, we figured out that Jesus is this. And then it's all challenged. It's all messed with. It's all shaken up. Anytime we think we've figured him out is the moment we've missed it. The way that we see the world will always be upended. But a few things. First of all, the way of Jesus calls us to give up the ways that we think he works. The path of Jesus was the path of the wilderness, in the wilderness. The new Exodus didn't look like the old Exodus. They were expecting a parting of the sea and the Roman military drowned just like the, the Egyptian military was but the way of Jesus is different. It's the path in the wilderness, a path through death and into new life. It was about dying and rise again, rising again. So the way of Jesus calls up to give up the ways we think he works. The way of Jesus calls, up, calls us to give up our previous identities. We can't rest on who we were before, on who we are on our own. All of that's scubalone. We must find a new and better identity in Christ. So what does that mean practically? Well, it means we reframe our lives by him. Lent is an important time to do this, but it's in what ways does who I am flow out of who he is? In what ways am I blinded by what I have built and what I have done? Okay, so we've got way of Jesus calls, up to, calls us to give up the ways we think he works. The way of Jesus calls us to give up our previous identities. And then third, the way of Jesus calls us to give up the things that are most valuable to us. This may be the hardest one. 
That doesn't mean that we're always called to give up everything that is valuable to us, but we are called to give it up in the sense of we have to think about it and hold it differently. That when we trust in Jesus, he properly orders everything. For Mary, the mother of Jesus, it was her reputation and life. She gave all of that up. Now, of course, now Mary has a wonderful reputation in the church, right? But she gave that up gave up her reputation, her life. For Mary of Bethany, it was her friendship with Jesus. For Mary of Magdalene, Mary Magdalene, it was all that she knew about him. Many of the disciples, okay, all the men, (laughs) couldn't let go of their preconceptions of how God was supposed to work. Judas couldn't let go of his thirst for money. God may be calling us to a season of letting go, each of us. Um, Not everything we let go of is a bad thing, okay? The exodus was good. The exodus was defining. But God is calling us into something new in the way of Jesus. So what does that look like for us? Well, I guess my challenge as we prepare for Holy Week is that we would be a people who keep watching, that we're alert. We say, God, what is that new thing that you're doing? That we almost like, like turn our ear and lean in a little bit. What, what is it that you're saying? Where is it that you're leading? And that's gonna shake us up. It's gonna challenge each of us in this time. But it's about orienting our lives in the way of Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray for the wisdom and the strength and the guidance to remain alert, to keep our eyes open and our ears alert and perceptive to what you would have to say in us. Lord, we're thankful for your faithfulness in the past. We're thankful for what you've done. Lord, we are thankful for the ways that you've provided for us and that you've cared for us. And we celebrate those things. And it is in knowing those things that we also know that you're the God who works and is active right now. Lord, will you forgive us in those places that we've put our identity in other things? We've defined ourselves by our job or our family or by what we've done well or what we've achieved or certain cultural or political identities. And Lord, we as the church say today, we're laying that down and we're, we're taking on this new identity that we have in you as being part of your family. And then Lord, today we wanna take on the, ro- the road of, new, of discipleship, which may cost us everything. It does cost us everything. And yet it allows us to reorder how we see the world in light of you and your great love for us. We trust you, we praise you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.